Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the quality of Australia's education system, and in particular, how to attract our best and brightest into the teaching profession. It's an important topic for an obvious reason. Our teachers make an enormous impact on our lives. For me, it was Mr Mullins in grade four and Mr Smith, my politics teacher in year 12. Almost all of us remember one or more of our teachers very fondly and very appreciatively. But something's happened in Australia over the past 40 years or so. The status of teaching seems to have declined and pay for teachers has certainly declined relative to other professions. And Australian students are sometimes not doing as well in international tests. To discuss these issues and how we might reverse them, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three Grattan gurus. First, our school education program director, Peter Goss. Pete, welcome to you. Hello, Paul. We're also joined by our school education fellow, Julie Sonneman. Hi, Julie. Hi, Paul. And finally, we're joined by Grattan Associate Jonathan Nolan. Jonathan, welcome to you. Hi, Paul. Peter, Julie and Jonathan have just released an important new report called Attracting High Achievers to Teaching. Peter, let's start at the start. Why do we need to attract more high achievers to teaching? Paul, we've been looking at the importance of the teaching workforce um, for some time. It's well understood in the education research circles that a teacher has a bigger impact on what a student learns than any of the other elements that is within the control of the school. And very often we talk about how do we take the current workforce and support them as much as we can, and that's vital. But it's also really important who comes into teaching. And as we've looked at this over the years, we've seen two strong factors come together. One that you've mentioned is that we have had a multi-generational slide in terms of the academic credentials of those who choose teaching. And the second one is the increasing evidence that a strong academic background is more likely to set someone up to be a teacher. And if they've also got the other attributes, they want to teach, they can communicate, build relationships and have resilience because a classroom's tough then they're ideally set up. So we put those two together and said, it's time to say, to look at who is coming into teaching, how has that changed, and then how do we reverse the trend? Okay, so let's get into some of these specifics shortly. But before we go, let's just define some terms. We talk a lot in this report about young high achievers. Who are we talking about, Peter? The way we're talking about that is um, people who have an ATAR above 80, which would mean they're in the top third of people who have an ATAR score, or someone who has not necessarily done that, but done another degree or part of another degree and done well at university. And young, young means school leavers? 18 to 25 is the group. Now, we know that a lot of people they do teaching as a career change. That's an important avenue. Um, but the bulk of the workforce comes in either as their first degree or as a, as a postgraduate degree. And one of the things that's changed, Paul, in, in terms of the decisions that people are, made, are making goes way back to the 1970s, and particularly for the female part of the workforce. Up until the 1970s, 
women had fewer choices. That if you were bright and you wanted to carry on studying, your options were basically nursing or teaching. And that opened up. But for the very best of reasons, giving bright women great choices, schools suffered somewhat. And since then, we've had a continual slide in terms of the academic credentials on average. And this has now become, unfortunately, a self-reinforcing cycle. And we want to break that cycle. And what's going on is, and our report shows all three of these pieces, we want to break that cycle. There are three steps. The first is that teaching is not perceived as attractive by high achievers. The second is that means few high achievers apply, and we show fewer high achievers are applying than used to. Because of the way ATAR works, that's the score that universities use to determine who gets in or out, if you don't have many high achievers applying, the ATAR score drops. But people don't want to waste their ATAR. So when they look at a course that has a low ATAR and they've done well themselves, they say, maybe that's not for me. And that low ATAR is pushing high achievers away. And so it goes. And so the cycle has been spiraling downwards in Australia. What we need to do to turn that around is to find a way to make teaching attractive to high achievers. Then we'll get more of them, get the competitive juices flowing, the ATAR scores will rise, and we can get back to a point uh, which other countries are at and Australia used to be at, where teaching was something to aspire to as a career as well as the opportunity to help children. Okay, I want to bring Julie in shortly, Peter, but can I just clarify one point? You've talked a lot about the teachers and the teaching profession and the declining academic credentials in Australia. Is it a simple equation here that a higher achiever makes a better teacher? Not absolutely. So uh, teaching is a very human thing. We talk about it. It's not mechanistic. It's not like building a bridge. It's organic. It comes through building relationships, understanding students, both in terms of their learning journey, but also relating to them as a person. And so it is really important to choose people who have those other attributes, one of which is wanting to teach and believing that all young people can learn. But when it boils down to it, if I had a choice, I, I would go on academic background. Because if you do multiple mini interviews or behavioral tests, yes, that will give you some indication of who will become a great teacher. But a stronger indication is, did they do well in their own academic journey? Julie, we've discussed or touched on some of the problems in Australia, but are there any countries overseas that we can look at as models in this regard? Can we point to any other countries that are doing it well or at least better? So if you look at some of the high-performing systems like Singapore and Finland and Korea, um, those systems uh, have teaching as a really highly sought-after career um, by high achievers. And they have really tough selection standards in place. But what's interesting is that they encourage a lot of people to apply so it's very competitive. So we know that in Singapore, for example, um, there's 10 applications for every spot in teaching. Um, and I think that's the key takeaway for Australia. It's not just about tightening our selection criteria into teaching. That is an issue. It's actually about how do we encourage more demand from those who have a lot of options. Okay, so we want more demand, but what's the situation at the moment? Um what, what are the numbers here? How many high achievers in Australia actually become teachers these days? So of the group of 
young people who have an ATAR above 80, uh, we know that only 3% of that group are choosing teacher education courses at the moment. And that's a lot lower compared to other courses like um, uh, like law, for example, and engineering, where around 9% of the high achievers go into. So we know that it's, it's not something that they're knocking down the door on. And has this trend changed over the years? It has. So if you look back to the 80s, as, as Pete was talk, talking about before, where teaching had a, a much higher status, um, one in three people who enrolled in teaching were from the, the top quintile of achievement. Today, it's one in five. So we've dropped a lot. And look, it's not just something that happened back in the 80s either. We see it over the last decade as well. So actually, the demand from high achievers to go into teaching has dropped by a third in the last 10 years alone. And that's actually been the biggest drop of all undergraduate fields of study. Okay, so we know the numbers, but we now also know a bit more about the reasons because, Jonathan, a lot of our report is informed by a survey that we've done of young high achievers and their attitude to teaching. Tell us about that survey. Yeah, that's right, Paul. We did an Australian first survey where we asked about a thousand young high achievers what they thought about their career options and also what they thought about teaching. And by comparing what they thought about their own career versus what they thought about teaching, we get an understanding of what might be holding them back from considering teaching as a career. Tell me about young Australians today, Jonathan. They seem to be a pretty altruistic lot. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And young people in our survey said that the number one thing they thought about when they chose a career was the ability to make a difference. Young people want to have a big impact on the world and they want to leave the world in a better place than they found it. And teaching has a lot, of, lot to offer for that. Um, and that's why 70% of people in our survey said they would consider giving teaching a go. 70% and yet Julie's just told us that ultimately among that high achiever group that we've surveyed, only 3% are actually taking the course. So what's going wrong? Where does teaching fall down as a career option? There's two big areas where teaching really falls behind, according to the people who completed our survey. First, it's pay. And second, it's ongoing career challenges. On pay, it's pretty clear where the gap is. Young high achievers in our survey thought that at the top of their career, they would earn about $140,000. They thought that they could only earn about $94,000 in teaching. And th those numbers were quite accurate. They might be 18-year-olds, but they were pretty cluey. That's a sort of reasonable estimate for a really high achiever in a career like law or engineering. They've got a good chance of earning that salary. But if you wanted to earn $140,000 with a teaching degree, you'd need to be in the top 4% of the kids in your class. For many high achievers, they don't really see that as possible. And so while they're interested in teaching, in order to make that sacrifice and become a teacher, they're staring down the barrel of a big financial sacrifice. Okay, so I'm seeing a recurring theme here, which I'll come back to Julie on shortly, which is pay and how that affects the attractiveness of teaching as a profession. But you also mentioned, Jonathan, the other 
The other downside from the view of the young high achiever, teaching doesn't have enough challenge. What do we mean by that? What do they mean by that? Yeah, that's a really good question. The people in our survey did think that teaching would be hard. Um, Long hours were mentioned by many people in the survey and a lot of people thought it would be very difficult. And that's not surprising. Most young people have just left schools. They have a pretty good idea of what it's like to be a teacher and it's not an easy job. But what the themes that came through over and over in the survey results were that people were concerned that after a few years of becoming a teacher, there weren't as many new challenges to allow them to progress their career. Um, High achievers are thinking about careers like in engineering where you, you go up a ladder and then you become a manager and you might become an expert in your field. And for young people in our survey, they found it difficult to see that path for their career in teaching. Okay, so we will come back to that theme, which is very important, this the career path that, that a teacher might be able to follow in future. But Julie, can I bring you back in on pay? This is a problem for young achievers today. It's a hurdle in front of them before they choose to become teachers. That doesn't seem to have always been the case. What's happened to teacher pay over the years and over the decades? There have been increases in teacher pay over the past decade, but the point is that it hasn't kept pace with increases in other professions. So while teaching used to be uh, well-paid com- compared to many other options back in the 80s and the 90s, and it was about on par up until 1980 with other professions. Since that time, other pain of the professions has taken off, and particularly for those who can earn near the top. So for high achievers who are ambitious, that means the trade-off of going to teaching is really high. So pay for teachers has declined relatively since the 80s and 90s in Australia. I'm very interested, Julie, in the other side of the coin, if you like, in that classroom. Student performance, has that declined as well? So student performance on international tests in Australia has dropped significantly in the last 15 years. Um, The testing began in 2000, but since that time, Australia's performance across all subjects tested, has declined and quite substantively. So we now know that a 15-year-old student today actually performs performs worse on international tests than they did back in 2000, despite all of the efforts and energy that's gone into education and improving the system. Okay, so the dimensions of the problem seem to me to be pretty clear. Student performance is, is flatlining or perhaps even declining. Teacher status and pay is declining and fewer high achievers are wanting to become teachers. So let's come to the hard part, Julie. What can we do about this? So in our reform package, we have three concrete steps that governments can take. And um, we estimate that if the government was to implement this, it would double the number of high achievers in teaching within a decade. Um, So the first part of the package is looking at short-term financial incentives, which scholarships, Uh, Cash in hand scholarships while uh, people are studying were incredibly attractive to the young people that we surveyed. That is a pretty cost-effective reform that acts quickly, that governments can really turn the tap on and tap off depending on how many people they'd like to um, encourage to apply. We estimate thousands of new scholarships would be needed. 
So how big are these scholarships, Julie? What sort of dollars are we talking about? So we're suggesting $10,000 each year for a student while they're studying. This is a, you know, an attractive package that we've tested with our survey respondents. Um, and scholarships have been offered in the UK uh, at large scale at the moment, and they've been very successful. And what we've seen there is that for every extra $1,000 offered, uh, there's an increase, direct increase in applications by 3%. So we think a substantive amount is needed um, and this should do the job. And am I right that teacher scholarships have been quite common in Australia in the past? That's right. So the Commonwealth scholarships, which uh, you know my parents and I'm sure many listeners' parents uh, probably received, were a really good leg up for a lot of people at that point in time who may have been working class to get into a professional job. Um, these scholarships would be different in that they would be targeted directly at high achievers, so people with an ATAR above 80. And we'd also be looking for candidates who also perform well on some of those other non-cognitive traits that are so important to teaching, like communication skills and whatnot. So really, we'd be targeting the best potential candidates across all those traits to apply. Okay, so school leavers with an ATAR above 80 and with the other attributes that are appropriate for teaching who choose to become teachers will get $10,000 a year courtesy of the Grattan Institute's program. That's point one. What's point two and three? So point two, so scholarships are great to get people into the profession, but you also need to make sure that people have a good experience while they're there and that high achievers' skills are made good use of. Our second reform looks at the career pathways and offering two new roles at a much higher level of pay. Both of these roles would help other teachers improve around them. So they would have extra responsibilities. So the first position of an instructional specialist uh, would have a higher rate of pay of $40,000, which would be around $140,000 for most teachers across the country in different states and territories. So what you're saying is that a um, top-rate teacher in the classroom at the moment basically gets about $100,000, and this new role of instructional specialist would generally attract about $140,000. That's right. So instructional specialists would receive substantially more pay, and they at half of their time would be spent on helping other teachers improve, and the other half of their time would also spent having teaching in the classroom, so maintaining that connection. We're also recommending a second position above instructional specialists called a master teacher, and they would be paid $80,000 more than your standard classroom teacher, which would take pay up to $180,000. This position works across schools, um, and they'd be akin to sit, you know, a regional director or a district officer. And really being responsible for a particular area of expertise um, for example, by, um, by a particular subject area or for a certain skill such as assessment. The reason why we're suggesting this focus is because, you know, teaching is a really complex job and there often isn't, there aren't a lot of positions which have people with deep experience in them in particular areas and that's what these new roles would do. Okay, so $10,000 for teacher student scholarships, two new roles for teachers, for senior teachers, for some of our best teachers, instructional specialists at $140,000 salary, master teachers, how many of them at $180,000 a year? So there'd be, this is a very elite cohort, so there'd be around 0.5% of the workforce, so roughly around 1,000 across Australia. 
if you think about how that might work, for example, in Victoria, which has a quarter of the nation's students, um, then that might be around 250 of the master teachers, half of them for primary, half of them for secondary. That means you might have sort of 50 primary mathematics specialists working across schools. And then if you imagine how the how schools are spread across, that they are supporting a manageable number of schools each, lifting the quality and supporting that, that crucial, how do we teach maths best? How do we teach science best or languages that complements the, the efforts we've had for a long time on how do we generically teach well? So I'm starting to see that this is uh, potentially quite an attractive package. You mentioned there's a third element, Julie. So the third part is a, is a new marketing campaign. And other industries do that. So you look at the Defence Force, they have a $20 million, $40 million a year um, marketing campaign. Um, and that's really just to go out there and promote these new reforms, the changes that we've suggested and to really reconceptualize teaching as well. So to make it a career that is challenging and is attractive for people who have lots of options um, elsewhere. Okay, so I said that was the hard part for Julie, but I've got the really hard part now for you, Peter, which is, sounds great. How are we going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? How much will it cost? We estimate that on a per student basis that this reform would cost about $620 per student per year. Now, because there's a lot of students, that adds up. That's $1.6 billion for government schools across the country. But let me bring you back to that $620 number because it's a really interesting number. At the moment, government schools are not funded at 100% of their Gonski funding target. They're funded more like 88%. If they were to get there, then... It, then the average government school would be getting about $1,800 extra above indexation and wages growth over the next decade or so. So what we're saying is that this package should account for about a third of the Gonski money that people have been fighting for for some years. And we can't think of a better way to spend the first large chunk of that. There's also needs in other areas. But this would be a real way to use that money well. Now, the blunt reality is that our government schools are not on the way to their full Gonski targets. Why not? The, uh, the deals that have been done over the last couple of years that we have written about and done previous podcasts on have said that all non-government schools will be on track to 100% of their targets, but government schools are going to be languishing um, notionally at 95%, but actually really at 91% because a bunch of the money is going to be used for things like depreciation. And depreciation on a new school building, well, it's real money, but it doesn't help hire a teacher or buy a textbook. So they are not on, they're not on track to get to that full amount of money. Um, if they were, this would be very affordable. Given that they're not, we're saying that state governments now need to step up. That they can either carry on with the status quo and this downward spiral, that they can find some of the money by folding in similar initiatives, but that are at much smaller scale than, than we think is needed, or they're going to have to face really tough choices, which is potentially raising class sizes in order to raise this amount of money. Regardless, we think that at $620 per student per year, for potentially 
nine to t- six to twelve months of extra learning, and then maybe more if the uh, expert career track works well. In a sense, that's a bargain. So sum up for me, Peter. Let's imagine Grattan's blueprint actually gets up, that this big reform plan that we've been discussing is actually implemented. Let's look forward, let's say, 10 years. The blueprint has happened. We're 10 years ahead. What's our school education system look like? Let me go back to the first part of that, which is the the cycle that we're in. The people who are young people who are thinking about what their careers would strongly recognise that school education is a way to make a tremendous difference to other young people's lives. They would find teaching a much more attractive career offer that if they had done well in themselves, they could get a scholarship while they were studying. They would get better mentoring when they moved into the profession because the instructional specialists, part of their job would be to help the the newcomers. And then if they continue to stick around and do well, they could continue to develop and advance in a specialised area. They could choose to go into a principal role if they wanted, but they can also stay connected to the classroom, having a greater and greater impact and getting paid for that. And at the moment, the difference is that they might be asked to take on those responsibilities but they don't have the opportunity for greater pay. This flows on to a deeper change in the culture, which is a shift to where in every school, the expectation is that every teacher is continually learning and improving. And as they're doing that, they have access to someone with deep expertise, whether it's in primary maths or secondary English or whatever it is, to help them along that journey. That happens in many schools today. Teachers are always striving to improve. In some schools, there are are these roles, but in too many of the schools, teachers are left on their own to try and improve. And what we're saying is that this focus on instructional leadership, on recognising the complexities of teaching, on recognising the deep expertise that it takes to identify where a young person is in their learning and move them forward, there's a whole system that wraps around that. And ultimately, that as a teacher, there would be a greater ability to explain this, that the public would understand just exactly it is that what goes into taking a young person along the learning journey that will set them up for the rest of their lives. Sounds like a vision worth pursuing to me. Peter, Julie, Jonathan, thank you so much for your work on this report, for your expertise and your explanations today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read the High Achievers report that we've been discussing today, or indeed dip into any of Grattan's reports and articles on school education and a whole lot more besides, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you have indeed enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.